0: Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July thirteenth, two 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. The Share ID for Friday, July eleventh, is 6636. That's 6636. This morning, A Vision for You presents... The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. The 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous represent a process of spiritual awakening. Their real advantage is that they are a specific method for producing this personal transformation, a change in the way a person thinks a change in the way a person feels, and a change in the way a person behaves. Done to the person, not by the person. The 12-step process is a precise method without dogma, never exclusive, but totally inclusive of all religious orientations or even no religious orientation. The big book suggests continuing to use these steps and our mind to develop our vision of God's will each day, our goal, purpose, and mission today. We have a responsibility to try to figure out, to actually know through these steps what God wants of us today. Who does God want us to be? What does God want? want us to do. We are asking for and receiving direction. We seek guidance. The big book also suggests that through these steps, we use our will to align our will with God's will. With this attitude and the 12 steps as our path, we cannot fail. Joining us this morning to speak about living life in these 12 steps are Harlan and Louisa, two recovered compulsive overeaters and loyal messengers of the program of recovery. Welcome, Harlan. Welcome, Louisa. Thank
1: you very much. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. Hi, Leah. Good morning. Are we ready it's to all go? yours. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Louisa and um we will be sharing today i'm going to be sharing on step 1 this morning i am a recovered compulsive overeater i am a sponsor i have a sponsor i've been in in program for 25 years but not all of that time have i been recovered and i am so grateful today that i am um so we are on step 1 right now we admitted we were powerless over alcohol food that our lives had become unmanageable so You know, in the beginning when somebody told me this step when I first came in, um, I heard it. I don't know that I really believed it. Actually, I didn't really believe it because I had to go out quite a few times before I really got that message. Like, how could I be powerless? You know, so many people come in, even people that will be on this line right now, even people that have been here for a while, not always do we believe that we're powerless. We still think there must be another way. There must be another food plan. There must be something else out there that's going to work for me. But I'm going to go sit. This was my theory. I'm going to go sit in these 12 step programs, you know, in this room. I'm going to listen to what they have to say, but I'm really not as bad as some of these people. Don't tell me I'm powerless, you know, and my life is unmanageable. No way. I work. I take care of my kids. I show up, you know, my life is not unmanageable. What are they talking about? So it took me a long time, and there are so many people that I hear that will say to me, I just have a problem with food. You know, I'm not powerless. Give me the right food plan, and I'll be fine. Granted, there are many people in OA right now today that are not powerless. They get the right food plan. They get the right... You know, the the right diet or whatever it is that they're on, they get the right exercise program, they do beautiful. They like the fellowship, everything's fine. Then there are people like me and some of us that are here that know after being beaten down over and over and over that we're powerless. How did I find that out? Well, the doctor's opinion was pretty clear on that. You know, I, I really did not understand that it's a mental obsession and a physical allergy. To me, it was always just, I can do this. How many Mondays, you know, did I have? I can do this. I'll try again on Monday. I'll try again on Monday. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say to myself, okay, this is it. You know, I'm going to do it today. I still thought I had the power. The power was still in me. In my mind, I never really thought I was powerless until I was beaten down over and over and over. You know, and unmanageable... When somebody told me unmanageable, I had to really look at my life. Was it really manageable? Was I managing when I was running to the gym every single day, and if I didn't go to the gym, I was in a panic? Was I managing my life when every time I had to go out for an occasion, my first thought was, oh, my God, what am I going to wear? I'm so overweight. I can't do this. You know, was I really managing when I was jumping down people's throats if I wasn't sticking to my food plan, when I wasn't eating for for weeks at a time because I had to lose weight for an occasion? Was that really manageable? Or if I put down the food, I'd pick something else up? You know, it just, I had to look at that. And I think the way that I found out for me that I was really powerless was not just with the doctor's opinion. Those words helped. Listening in the rooms helped. I had to identify with people that were telling me exactly what I'm saying today, telling me what they went through. I had to really hear other stories to know that, you know what, I understand what they're saying. I belong here. Maybe I really am powerless. And when I finally came to the conclusion that food had the power over me, I didn't have the power over food, that was the beginning. I had to write my history. You know, somebody asked me, Write down your history. Write down what you've done. And my God, when I looked at it, this is not somebody who has the power over food. I tried every single method out there. I don't think I missed too many. I really don't think I missed too many. You know, I've been poked, pinned, hypnotized, pills, diet clubs, money, gyms, you name it. I've done it. That's powerless. And the one last thing I'll say that that really hit home for me was when i shared my story with somebody and that's why like for the newcomer it's so so important to to sit and speak to them because when i shared with someone what i thought they said to me louisa normal people don't think like that they don't sit down at a table with friends and family and focus on that cookie across the table they're talking about conversation they're having a good time They don't wake up every single morning praying to God that they don't eat today, that they don't compulsively eat today. You know, it's just, that's not normal. And these things, little by little, sunk in. But I had to go out there and be beaten down over and over and over. So this step for me, step one, you know, to me, people say step zero. I don't know about a step zero. You know, you have to put down the food. I, I don't know about that at all. I'd never heard of a step zero. I've heard it in the rooms. People have said it. For me, I couldn't put down the food until I knew in my heart that I was powerless. And I say for anybody out there that doesn't really know and doesn't really take this step, you're pretty much doomed to experiments and stay out there a little bit longer. You have to know in your heart that you're powerless over food. And is your life really manageable? Sit down and take a look at your life. Is it really manageable? If your life is unmanageable and you know you're powerless, then you're on your way. So now what do you do? Now my
2: partner Harlan is gonna
3: tell
1: <laughs>
2: us.
3: <laughs> Hi, thank
2: you, Louisa. Good morning everybody. I'm Harlan and I'm a compulsive overeater.
4: <clears throat>
2: Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Am I unmuted? Okay. Um, I've been in programs since 1979. I have 15 years of current back-to-back abstinence, and I've lost a little over 500 pounds since the very beginning. We have just heard Louisa very eloquently and very beautifully describe to us the powerless condition of step one. And just to touch on it again, I have a mind that is different from a normal temperate eater. human beings get angry all human beings get happy and sad and they get selfish and they get self-seeking and they get fearful they get they get scared they have all these ranges of human emotions all human beings have those things i am not scared and controlling because i'm a compulsive overeater i'm scared and angry and controlling because i'm a human being but there's one big difference that when I have these emotions or it's a day with a Y in it or a month without an X in it, my brain will, in a very unnatural sense, focus in like a laser on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating certain foods. It doesn't get it from eating broccoli. It doesn't get it from eating baked trout. It gets it from a Kit Kat bar, Doritos, ice cream, what have you, French fries, what have you. Because those foods will produce in me an effect. And the effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating those foods. Once I eat the food, I also trigger the physical allergy. And the allergy is the craving that sets up within my body excuse me, that explains many things for which I cannot otherwise account, that the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. But what we're going to delve into briefly here in step two is what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating a Kit Kat bar? What if I could focus, what if I could feel better already? And in Chapter 2, there is a solution. It tells me two things I need to know above everything else. It says to me that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. And that tells me that I must have something to quiet down the mind to make me feel better and it also says that the cessation of drinking is but a beginning. And we look at a person that's overweight and we say, I know what we'll do. We'll reduce the amount of food going in. The weight will come down and you'll feel better. And that works for a while with me. And I, like Louisa, I've tried Pops and Weight Watchers. And there's people out there listening right now that have tried everything from systems and all these various things. Jennies and all these various surgeries and all these various things and they don't work for people like us they work for normal people but they don't work for people like us because when I don't eat so much I feel lots better I feel anger better I feel fear better I feel selfishness self-seeking I feel dishonesty guilt shame remorse and happiness much better and as those feelings burst to the surface inside of me My brain will cry out incessantly for the sense of ease and comfort that food produces. But what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes about from eating the food because I already feel better? The process of bringing God into that equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. And if, they're the two, if the two most misunderstood steps are three and four, the most underutilized steps are two and ten. And where you see people struggling in four, where you see them struggling in ten and eleven and twelve and nine, where you see them giving up, it's because they have misconstrued and underutilized step two. Steps one, two, and three are not working steps. They are conclusions of the mind. The whole chapter, more about alcoholism, is designed to illustrate for me the insanity, the mental bedlam that goes on in my mind prior to the first compulsive bite. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, if I have to be restored to sanity, I must have been insane and if I look at more about alcoholism I see illustrated for me Jim the jaywalker Fred the man of 30 I can relate exactly right down the pipe that I did those crazy things now here is what is misunderstood by most people that I've come in contact with in 35 years and me about step two it says God as you understand God So a lot of people think that they can be any religion they want to be. And that's true. You can be. Or no religion. It's all all good. We're all good. But I have to have a God in my heart and a God in my mind that works for me. Now, there are philosophers and historians and musicians and poets and authors of all manner today that are going to philosophize about what God is and what God is not. Let them have at it. There are two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. And I have to have a God in my heart that is alive. I have to have a God in my heart that is alive because living things can grow and adapt and change with me as my life adapts and changes. The bottom of page 43, it says, Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So that power that I hold in my head, in my heart, must be a higher power, 45 in the big book. The thesis line in the entire book is on page 45, and it says, well, that's exactly what this book is all about. Here's the thesis line of the big book. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. It says problem singular, and on page 43 at the very bottom, or 42 at the bottom, it says problems plural. What's the difference? Once my food problem has been solved by a higher power, the working of the steps, not just sitting there. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. When that monkey chatter in my head is quiet, I am free. I am emancipated to now solve other problems like making more money, like whatever your situation might be. My situation is such that I need to I own a business, I have a life, I have a dog, I have bills, and I bet you have some of those things or all those things too. But I can't solve problems when my entire psyche is eat, don't eat, eat, don't eat, eat, don't eat. I can't function like that. Now, the most important thing I can ask myself on a daily basis is on page 47. Do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. And how do I build the structure? I work work the rest of the steps. I work the rest of the steps. So where I see people and I've done it too, struggling in the work, they do not understand Appendix Two. They do not understand the meaning of Step Two, that I must have a power greater than myself that I I have in my heart. The God of my childhood would not keep me out of the food for nine seconds. Great God. Great God. Split the Red Sea. God, that was awesome. Cecil B. DeMille depicts it for us in the movies beautifully. The oil, it burned for eight days instead of one. Bravo, bravo. Wouldn't keep me out of the food for eight seconds. I have to have a God in my heart that is not punitive. I have to have a God in my heart that is, as it says in Chapter 4, my constant companion, not my constant critic, not my constant adversary not my constant enemy, but my constant companion. Does that mean I get everything I want? No. But what it means is I trust that the God God of my understanding is perfect at running the world, and I can stay in my hula hoop and just take care of what I need to take care of. And that is so important for me because if I do not see the need for the spiritual awakening... I will not do the rest of the work because all it becomes is another tedious homework assignment. And this is so important. If there's a trap door between where I sit today in recovery and where I most don't want to be in the food, the trap door is a cessation of that belief and the cessation of an appreciation for step two. Step two will just sink me down if I don't constantly bring that God into my heart. And that's enough on me, Louisa. You can do step 3.
1: Oh, I love this man. Very good. I would I would rather be listening to you. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> So step 3 made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And as Holland had just, you know, told us, willingness willingness is so important and they say it's like opening a locked door step three is like opening that door you know it's not we're not taking an action here we are making a decision so many people you know call and i talk to them on the phone and they say well how do i know how do i know what's my will and what's god will god's will you know how do i do this how do i do this you don't you don't do it you make a decision You're asking God, the God that we found in step two, whoever that is for you. Now, we already know we're powerless. And we already know now we have found something that's bigger than us because apparently we can't do it ourselves or we would have, right? So now we're asking that power. We're asking that power. Please help me. I am willing. I am willing to turn not just my food over, to a sponsor every day or whatever it is that you do I'm willing to turn my life over my will and my life my will is strong this is a big decision you know for me this was a huge decision I'm not turning my life over to anybody I'm from Brooklyn you're not getting my life you're not getting my will you're not getting anything until you prove to me that I can trust you you know this is how I felt about this and it was a big step for me in trust I had to trust That this God that I said I believed in, this God that I wrote about and that I cried to and that I prayed to, was going to remove this obsession and help me every single day for the rest of my life, if I was willing to allow Him to. I had to open my hands and I had to say, my way did not work. And I had to know that in my heart. Like Holland said, this God had to be in my heart because I could no longer do it myself. I had to know that every single day for the rest of my life, I was going to wake up and say, I am turning my life over to you. I couldn't go through the rest of these steps until I was sure about this one. This is not an easy program. It's simple, but it is not easy. And I have to know that somebody's got my back. I have to know that my decisions were not working anymore and that I'm going to trust that this God was going to take me each and every day. And when I wasn't sure, I have to come back and I have to make that contact and say, am I now willing to let you take this? You know, my way is not working. So here I'm just making that decision. I'm going to make that decision to change the way I think and the way I feel about how I'm going to run my own life. And the prayer on page 63 in the big book is always one of my favorites. And it says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. So huge. That's so huge. I never understood that. What is the bondage of self? That's me thinking about me every single day. How could I think about anything else? How could I help anyone? How could I recover if all I thought about was myself? That I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power. Now, my interpretation was not the same with that. You know, mine was take away my difficulties so I could get skinny, so I could have more money, so I could do whatever I want, so I could eat whatever I want, so I could get along with other people. You know, I never realized what this prayer really meant. Take away my difficulties. So I could have a clear passage to help other people. Take away the things that block me from you and block me from the rest of the world. That self centeredness. Please God, take this away from me because I can't get out of my own way. And then it says, Thy love and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. And that's my prayer. That's my that's that's my entrance way into the rest of these steps. Get me out of my own way. God, take the wheel. You know, if I got into an airplane and I went into the the cockpit and and I said to the pilot, okay, uh, you know, I'm on this flight with you now, but let me show you how to run the plane. I have no experience. I don't know what I'm doing, but you know what? I think I could do this a little bit better than you. So get out of my way, and if I have trouble, I'll call you. Thank you. I don't think that's happening. So this is telling me, you know, Louisa, sit in the seat, shut your mouth, trust that there's a God that's going to fly this plane, and all you've got to do is be willing and open and honest. And on that, we are
2: going to go to Holland for step four. <laughs> Thank you, Louisa. If there are two steps that are the most misunderstood of the 12 steps, those two steps are three and four, and as Elisa just told us about step three, step three, you're not turning anything over to anyone. It is a decision to do so based on the ABCs, based on the information that we've gotten in the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. And there's a lot of people who hear the ABCs all the time in meetings, and they don't even hear it anymore. They're not listening. And briefly, the ABCs on page 60, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. There are people that are identifying themselves as compulsive overeaters in meetings of OA all over the country and all over the world, excuse me, and they don't really have a concept of what that means. What it means is I have an allergy of the body coupled with a twist of the mind, and the mind drives me into the food, and the body makes it impossible for me to stop, and I can't manage my own life, and we've talked about that already that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. That means nothing of this world is going to relieve me of this this condition that God could and would if he were sought, that I have to have that belief. So it says they're being convinced of what? Of what we just said. We're at step three. Now what are we going to do? How do we turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him? By uttering a prayer? No. We have to take action. And at the bottom of 63, it says, next, we launched on a course of, spirit, of vigorous action. It does not say next in a year, next in a month, next in a week. We we launched out on a course of vigorous action. And it says, this is the first step of which it, uh, excuse me, let's read it right. Next, we launched on a course of vigorous action. The first step of which is a personal house click key <laughs> house cleaning, which many of us have never attempted. It's only 5.57 in the morning here, guys. I'm in Arizona. Sorry. Okay. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once, and you have people say you do a step a month, you do a step a year, you do a step a century, at once, followed by a strenuous effort to face be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us, our liquor was but a symptom we had to get down to causes and conditions. What is the liquor a symptom of? What is the food a symptom of? The food is a symptom of a mind that is twisted to the point where when it feels quite right, we go immediately to the food, immediately to the food because it's the only relief we have from that intense pain of not eating. And number two, we have that allergy of the body, which we can do nothing about. So the liquor is symptom. Now, here are here are some of the misconceptions that I've seen about step four. Number one, people are trying to work the perfect food plan. They're trying to get their lives perfect, be at the perfect weight to do the perfect fourth step so that they'll never have to do this work again and they can be done with it folder dash, folder dash. God may love you, but he's not going to hang your fourth step on his refrigerator. Just go to it. What it very simply is, is a series of questions. You know the answer to every one of them. The first section of the fourth step is the resentment section. Time kind of prevents me from going through it in detail. I've done that in the past. I'll do it again uh, on, in this forum. But for right now, we just have to be brief. The first section of the fourth step is very simple and it's the resentment section. Column one, who or what do you resent? You all know who you resent. You go back through your life and be as thorough as you possibly can be. If you forgot the name of the girl with the red dress or you forgot the name of the boy with the blue shirt, put down the boy with the blue shirt. Put down the girl with the red dress. If you can't remember something, ask your sponsor for help. Column one, who or what do you resent? It's not always going to be a who. I had strong resentment against the old expression that said blood is thicker than water because when someone said blood is thicker than water, I was immediately left out because I, I didn't have parents at that time. I, I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, cousins. I don't have any of that stuff. So when people would say that, I was immediately left out of the conversation. And that made me mad, so I put that down too. Column one, who or what do you, re- do you resent? Column two, in 19 words or less, what did they do to you? Where am I getting the 19 words from? On page 65, the most amount of words that the big book says for column two or allows for column two is 19. We don't need to write a book about what your mother did to you. We don't need to write a book about what your next-door neighbor did to you. 19 words or less. Why are you mad at them? You know the answer to that question. Column three, what basic instinct of life is affected? If you don't know what the basic instincts of life are, you can consult your sponsor and, and we look at the basic instincts of life as the emanation point for all anger, all fear. Very briefly, the three basic instincts of life are the social instincts, And the social instinct, very briefly, is what do people think of me? The second part of the social instinct is self-esteem. What do I think of me? But what I think of me more often is going to be a reflection back of what I think you think of me. And that I'm going to reflect back. If you like me, I'm going to like me. If you don't like me, I'm not going to like me very much. That's why it's very hard for us. You walk into a room with 100 people, 99 of which love you and one doesn't like you, you'll spend the whole night trying to get that one person to turn around and like you because you want to have that self-esteem. And now I'm comfortable with the fact that there are people that don't like me because I have a God that loves me. And the second basic instinct of life is the, the, the financial, the security instinct, the first section of which is pocketbook. The second section of which is emotional security. The third of section of it is personal security. The third of the basic instincts is the sex instinct. We all have this, it's God given, it's not to be despised or loathed. So anything that I perceive as a threat to what I already hold in these basic instincts or a threat to my ambitions for the future in these basic instincts is going to trigger anger, fear, selfishness, self seeking and dishonesty. It's all very simple stuff. Very, very simple stuff. Column three, the basic instinct. Column four is on page 67 of the big book. Column four, and it very simply says, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. In other words, what did you do to set the ball in motion in this resentment that you have against so-and-so, okay? Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Notice that anger is not listed as one of the defects in the resentment section because it's assumed. If there was no anger, there'd be no resentment, and if there was no resentment, you wouldn't be dealing with it in the resentment section. So we put down the defect of character that caused us to take or omit those actions. Now, why do we love a good resentment? What is so attractive about being resentful all the time? Why do we nurse a resentment and rehearse a resentment? Why do we carry them with us wherever we go? Some of us have moved from state to state to state, and we bring our resentments with us, and we water them, and we fertilize them, and we share them with other people, and we know just who to call to have a a hate thing for Joe or Fred or Rumpelstiltskin. Why do we love a good resentment? Because in resentment, I can abdicate responsibility for my life and I can blame others and justify the most errant nonsense imaginable and I can be knee deep in pizza boxes and knee deep in raisinets and milk duds and M&M's and I can blame you that if you hadn't have done that to me, I would not be the way I am today. That's why we love a good resentment and we're so hard pressed to let them go because the one thing I don't want to do is stand before God in the sunlight free of those resentments because now I have nobody to blame. Now some of you are on this phone saying, but wait a minute, I was molested. Wait a minute, I was raped. Wait a minute, I was abandoned. Wait a minute, I was whatever. And I didn't have a part in that. I was a child. I was a baby. I was whatever it was. Yes, I understand. And these horrible things do happen. And I don't have an explanation why they happen. But I do know that they do happen. And some of you have been hurt very deeply by people and you have been hurt very deeply by the world, and you had no part in it. Do you want to let them continue to kill us? Do you want to harbor that resentment, knowing that the resentments are futile and fatal? How are they futile? They they accomplish nothing. Nothing. And I know a little bit about that, too. Because I grew up with a father that when he was a teenager, his family was obliterated off the face of the earth and every possession he had was stolen and every human being that he knew was killed and he alone survived. This is prior to World War II, this is more turn of the century. He was the sole survivor. I know a little bit about that too. We have to make a decision. Do we want to continue to let them kill us? Do we want to continue to let them control us, rule us, and dominate us, or do we want to give it to God? That's a decision I have to make. The next section of the fourth step is the fear section. Very simply, at the bottom of page 67, it says, Notice that the word fear is bracketed along the difficulties with Mr. alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It is an, was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Four columns again for the fear inventory. Who or what do you fear? Why do you fear it? 19 words or less, please. Third column in the fear inventory. What basic instinct or instincts of life are affected? Fourth column, what did you do to set the ball in motion? what character defects were brought to the surface. If you have a resentment in connection with the fear, it belongs in the resentment section, not the fear section. The third part of the fourth step is the sex inventory. Now, many of us harm and hurt and and do horrible things to each other in the sexual area. Briefly, because we're pressed for time, This is a five-column inventory with a side assignment. You'll know the answer to every one of the questions. Some of the ways that we hurt each other in a sexual area. Obviously, the first one is I'm in a committed relationship and I'm cheating. Okay? I believe, and this is me, this is not OA. This doesn't have to go for you. I'm just telling you what I believe. So please don't throw it in my face in the question section or call me later or yell at me. This is my belief. I, notice I said I, I didn't say you. I cannot be working the 12 steps while I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. Notice I said I. What you do is different because we are not the arbiter of anyone's sexual conduct. I don't pretend to know what's best for you. I'm talking about me. If I'm cheating, that's one way. What about some other ways? What about using our God-given sex powers while we're keeping our clothes on to possibly manipulate another person? Maybe there's a supervisor at the office that, that has a crush on you and you're cultivating that knowing that there's nothing to it from your standpoint, but you're going to use that to guarantee further employment. Sex has nothing to do with that. Enjoyment has nothing to do with that. Recreation has nothing to do with that. That's using our God-given sex power for something other than what it was intended for because these sex powers were given to us to enjoy and to recreate ourselves or recreate ourselves. They don't have to necessarily be together. And it doesn't matter whether it is a heterosexual relationship, a same-sex relationship, that is not the issue here at all and that is not for me to know, judge, or comment on. It is using our God-given sex powers for something other than what it was intended for. Perhaps we are using our God-given sex powers in a committed relationship to manipulate or control another person. Maybe they're White Sox fans and you want them to be Cubs fans. You'll show them. You'll cut them off at the pass until they come around to your way of thinking. That's not what it's for. They want to buy the blue car. You want to buy the red car. You'll cut them off. Well, that's not what it's for. Maybe we're in a committed relationship where we need to stop making demands on the other person that they do things that they have repeatedly told us they're uncomfortable doing. We need to look at that, too. Maybe we need to give in a little bit more because they've asked us to do something and we haven't done it and maybe we need to give in a little bit more. We don't have the time in this forum to go over everything, but let's very quickly get to the mechanics of the sex inventory. Column one, who did you hurt? This will always be a who, obviously. Column two, what did you do to them? Column three, what basic instincts are affected? Column four, what character defects caused you to take or omit the actions in column two. And then we're going to throw in another column, column five. What should you have done instead? What should you have done instead? And we look at these things and we put them on paper. There's not one question here you don't know the answer to. You can knock this out in a day, two days tops. There's no reason to drag this out. The only reason people drag it out is actually they're afraid they're not doing it perfectly or they don't really want to do it and it's just a busy, busy assignment to them. They don't see the need. We're going to uncover, discover, and discard. Uncover what has been hurting us. Discover who we are. I didn't realize I was that scared. I didn't realize I was that dishonest and selfish. And number three, we're going to discard. I know that's very brief, but we're pressed a little bit for time so, I'm going to turn step five over to Louisa. But before I do, I'm just going to reiterate this step four is so simple. And there's a whole industry out there of people trying to sell you folders, pamphlets, concordances, all manner of things. You don't need that. It's columns, it's a piece of paper. You can knock it out in nothing flat. Resentment section, fear section sexual harm section. There's nothing that's that complicated to it if I see the need to do it. you don't do it perfectly, you leave something out by mistake. We have other steps to catch that stuff. I brushed my teeth yesterday. I'm going to brush them again today. I showered yesterday. I'm going to shower again today. This is the same thing. There's no such thing as we've done it and we never do it again. We're going to be visiting these things As we move through the steps, especially in 10 and 11, we're going to move through these things as a review and we're going to clean up all the things that we missed because God understood when he engineered the big book through Bill's hand that we will never rise above the level of human beings and as human beings, we're going to miss stuff. This is real simple. If you don't have a sponsor that can sit down and show this to you, I suggest you get one because there's nothing complicated here. Louisa, take it away for step five.
1: Okay. Thank you, Holland. Uh, Oh, what he said was so so great. So many people complicate this, you know, stories, books, pages, notebooks. It's your story. Your story is your story. And now in step five, (laughs) we're going to give that story to somebody, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. You know, people get so stuck on this because they have to tell. This is ego deflating. It's a a step of humility. It's a step of trust. I have to trust another human being. You know, I, I hear so many people say, well, I don't know who to tell and I don't know who to trust and I don't want to tell this person that and what if they tell somebody what I tell them? This is a program of recovery and hopefully... Hopefully your sponsor whoever you're working with has worked their program. They're not going to tell anybody. Here's where we're asked to trust. And this is our story. Our story is our story. It doesn't change. It doesn't get complicated. Like Harlan said, you know, it's just your story. That's it. You took an inventory, and now you are going to open yourself up to another human being. You're going to trust that God's protecting you. You're going to be fearless, and you're going to just go to it. I know that I, I did it the first time around, like it was a Chinese menu. You know, I told this one a little bit of this and this one a little bit of that, and I wanted to tell the priest this and I, because I did not trust enough to tell somebody my entire story. What will they think of me? Good grief. When I did it this last time, when I truly did it, I sat down with my footsteps. My sponsor gave me the time which is a lot, you know, it's a a good chunk of time that you have to give to somebody to do this stuff, and listened. And when I got to that last column, he explained to me what my part was if I didn't know it. It wasn't a whole big debate, his opinion on my life, what I did wrong, you know. No, I gave him my inventory, he helped me find my part in it, I was able to make my my list of people that I think I owed an amends to. You know, there were some people that I thought I owed an amends to that I did not. There were some people that were on that list that I wasn't really sure about what kind of amends I would have to make to them. But that's a whole other, you know, thing. But the thing was, I was able to, to take another human being and trust them. That was it. And I had to be humble. I had to, you know... It- <laughs> no more of this, don't you know who I am, you know. I had to take away all those masks that I wore all that time, my defensiveness, my mistrust, my dishonesty, and I had to show another human being exactly who Louisa was. You know, and it tells me in the big book that if we skip this vital step, we could never overcome our addiction, our our food, you know, Compulsive eating, drinking, whatever it is. For us, it's compulsive eating. We have to just be willing to do it. Take the bull by the horns and just do it. And a lot of people get stuck. I know I did on that. You know, I wrote everything out, but I wasn't given it. I was so crazy that after I wrote it out, I hid it. And I told one of my sponsors, this is way back when I first did it. I said, if I should die, you go into my house. And you find that fourth step. This is where I hit. And you take it. And don't you dare let anybody see it. I was so scared. I was so fearful that somebody was going to know who I really was. Now my life is totally different. Now my life is an open book. It truly is an open book. If someone needs to know something about my life that's going to help them recover. And the amazing part is when I did give my fifth step away I, wanted to, I gave it my fourth step away. I was told, wow, I did that too. You know, the person I gave it to shared with me their experience. I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only one in the whole world who did these things. It was the most freedom and the most trust I had gotten in my life, probably, because nobody really ever knew what really went on inside me. So this, to me, this step was just such an awesome opening of a door for me. It really was somebody knowing who I was and still accepting me, and it opened a whole world. It opened a whole world to the next the next uh, lifetime, the next steps. It's like I took a whole new, I erased everything from the past, and I was able to start new and open that door. And in that, Holland's going to tell us what we do next. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank
2: you, Louisa. Step six is the first step that we're going to use in the twelve that is going to take the life we're living now out of the laboratory and into the world. When I say the laboratory, what I mean is the first five steps, are the three three steps, one, two, three, are conclusions of the mind. Step four is the first of the action step. Step five, we tell to a person who is not going to be uh, affected. In other words, if I have a resentment against Joe... I do not give my fifth step to Joe's brother because he's going to be affected or Joe's friend or whatever it is. Uh, Now I'm going to take it out of the laboratory and I'm going to start working it in the world. And when I look at step six, it very simply asks me a question about my level of willingness. And it says, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Wait a minute. Can I operate my business Honestly, can I operate my life without fear and anger and selfishness and self-seeking? Can I go out into the world and know that I am going to have to give up the only thing I knew? Now, I want you to picture, if you will, for just a minute that China, Russia, the United States, uh, Israel, Poland, uh, Germany, Japan—whatever—they're all have all declared war on me. They've declared war, and they're here in Scottsdale with the most modern weaponry imaginable: smart bombs, dumb bombs. Bombs that can do algebra, trigonometry, word problems, they've got it all. And I've got my stick. I got my stick. I found a stick, a branch that had broken off a tree here in Arizona. And I'm going to go out there and fight them with my stick. You might say, how ridiculous that is. How imbecilic that is. Don't you know you're going to die? But what you're seeing in that illustration is absolutely identical to what I did every day of my life. I went out into the world and the world said, this is the way we live. And I said, I want all of you to live another way. And I brought my stick And it was as ineffective as you can imagine. But my stick was the only weapon I had and I didn't want to let it go. My lying, my selfishness, my dishonesty, my anger, and most of all, my fear was all I knew. And as I sat there lying and trembling, angry, selfish, self-seeking to the max, my life went down and down and down and down and down. And there was an old alcoholic. I feel sorry for anybody that never got to, to hear him. I heard him in Chicago. old Joe. He's dead now. He used to say, The first rule of the hole, stop digging. And my lying and my fear and anger, selfishness and self-seeking and dishonesty were digging and digging and digging a deeper hole. And the the more the hole went down, the more I lied, the more I cheated, the more I was scared, the more I was angry, the more I was full of rage and self-pity. And I was digging and digging and digging and digging. And finally, God tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, stop digging. And when I stopped digging, little by little, the hole filled up and made me level with the earth. Because God was in charge. And I don't have to outthink you. I don't have to outmaneuver you. I don't have to be one step ahead of you. I can trust that God is handling the world and it's going along just fine. I'm going to let Louisa talk about step seven. And thank you. Take it away, Louisa. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. So now, now we know our defects, right? We've figured out what they were. And as Holland said, We held on to those defects, you know, and in step six, we're asked to become willing. You know, just like we had to become willing for God to, in step three, to allow God to take our lives. In step six, we had to become willing. And now we're actually going to ask our God, our higher power, to remove these defects of character. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. You know, that's... That's a big thing. It's a very short part in the big book, but it's a very big step. It was for me. I speak for myself. It was for me because, like Colin just explained, those shortcomings, those defects, they served me. That was my life, you know, my defensiveness, my self-centeredness. So I'm going to ask God in this step to please take these away. And I ask him often when I see them crop up. But in this step, I truly and humbly asked because I wanted to be well. And that was my motivation. You know, my main motivation was, please, God, take this from me so I have a clear path to you. And again, I can't help another human being. I can't even help myself if that path is clouded by all these defects. I lived in my shortcomings and defects. I needed them removed to have the sunshine come in. It's like the light coming into the room. You're asking God to shine that light, take away the darkness, take away what I just saw through the other steps. You know, you have to go backwards now. What what do we see? What do we do? Now we believe there's a God. Now we know that we have these defects. Now what? Now I'm going to ask God, and I'm going to ask him honestly and humbly and mean it, and I had to mean it. That's why I had to go through those steps first. I had to see the damage I did, and then I had to really, really mean it. And I say, my creator, I am now willing, this is page 76, I am now willing that you should have all of me, not just the parts I felt like giving up, all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go from here to do your bidding. Amen. And that's really what it's all about. My usefulness to you and my fellows. Shine your light through me. Remove those defects, God, so that your sunshine, your light, your goodness, your kindness, all the things I know I could be could shine through. And I can help another person. I can help myself. I can have a better life. Shine your light through me. And that light cannot get stuck on those defects anymore. Once I give them up and God removes them, I become a different person. I'm on my way to becoming the person that God intended me to be. And now
2: we have <laughs> Colin. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Louisa. Step eight is a step that when you go to a meeting and they start discussing step eight, almost immediately they will go right into step nine. Uh, There's something about step eight that tells people, um, just go on the nine and don't worry about me. I, I don't know what that is, but step eight is a very definite step unto itself. Briefly, it says, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And the reason that step eight is so important for me is that there are people that I had harmed very greatly that I cannot make amends to in this world, either because they're dead or because I can't find them. When I was a little boy, I blamed my mother for everything that went wrong in my life. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute. She could be a three-year-old or a two-year-old the next minute. And she could be the most together, well-read person the next minute. And there was never any rhyme or reason as to who she was going to be, at what time, for whatever reason. And I hated her for that. And I took things out on her that went wrong in my life. And I was as abusive. I was as cruel. I was as hateful toward her as I could be. The greatest joy in my life was her misery and I ate a lot of food and flunked a lot of tests and did a lot of things because I knew that it would hurt her and that gave me joy. I remember distinctly when I was a kid, we rode our bikes to a local place where they were giving away license plates for your bicycle and they had advertised, come on in and get a license plate for your bike. Oh, I was so excited and I went out there with my friends and they all got a license plate for their bike and I didn't because my name is not common. And he didn't have Harlan. He had Howard, he had Harvey, but no Harlan. I was just devastated. And she was in the hospital with pneumonia. Pneumonia in 1964 was a much bigger deal than it is today. You were in an oxygen tent and you were in the hospital for a long time. And I remember very distinctly, it was a Friday, I was 10 years old, and I got home and I, in my mind, even though you may laugh on the phone, in my mind, not having a license plate for your bicycle with your name on it's not a big deal. In my mind at that time, it was the same as any disaster you could possibly think of. I was devastated and she called the house and I told her, I hate you. I hope you die. I hope I never see you again. And she didn't miss a beat, though. She said, what are you doing going to a restaurant? I left you frozen food. I left you things in the refrigerator. She didn't miss a beat on that one. But anyway, those are some of the things I did. And I remember when I was also 9 or 10 years old, we were playing baseball with a rubber ball, and I was pitching And I thought it would be funny if I, instead of throwing the ball to the batter, I hit someone watching the game, and I hit a little boy who at the time was four years old, and I was nine or ten, and there is a tremendous amount of strength difference between a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, and a four-year-old. And I hit him with the ball, and everybody did laugh except him. God, how I wish I had never done that. God, how I wish I had never done that, and I can't find him. And my father, I heard him, too, because I was ashamed of him. Spoke very little bro, broken English, if that, didn't make a living. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, and I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very different. And I remember I went years and years and years in program, concentrating on my relationship and working on it with my sponsor and God And for a long time, between 1979 and 1994, I had come to the conclusion that I did not choose these parents, that they were chosen for me, and that gave me a modicum of peace. And then something happened in 1994. My daughter was born. She hates me now. She doesn't speak to me, but my daughter was born. And at once, I got it. My daughter was born, and she had to go into the neonatal intensive care unit. And when you give medicine to a baby, you don't give it through the arm like you would an adult. You give it through the head and the feet. And as I saw her struggling in the little isolette, I got it at once how much I hurt my mother. And I looked up, and I said, I get it, Mom, and I'm sorry. And I was immediately... Flooded with the thought that yes, I didn't choose a crazy mentally ill mother, but she didn't choose her mental illness either. And that if she could have been Laura Petrie, she would have been Laura Petrie. And if my father could have been Rob Petrie, he would have been Rob Petrie because they would have denied me nothing. That's how much they loved me. Now, how do you make amends to those people when you cannot avail yourself of step nine? I I make amends to those people by recovering because that's what they would have wanted from me during their life was to recover and live the life I'm leading today. I make amends to them by trying as best I can to help others taking care of my business, taking care of me, doing my walking, doing my swimming, doing the things that are consistent with a good life. How do I make amends for hitting that little kid with the ball? How do I make amends for some of the rude things that I said and did? I stop doing them. And I pray for the people in my past that I cannot find or that are Gone from this earth every day, and I love them, and I know that they love me, and I feel them with me all the time. But eight, before I turn it over to Louisa for nine, is a very definite, separate step because the willingness to make these amends must come from God. And that's why, as I've said before, step two, where you see people struggling in four, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, they're really struggling with two. Because they just they don't see the need. And they want to hang on to these harms. They want to hang on to these things and not move forward because they don't have a God in their heart that they're willing to believe in. There's nothing in the book that says you must believe. It says you must be willing to believe. Okay, Louisa, step
3: nine.
1: Okay. Okay. So Step nine, make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I repeat that. Except when to do so would injure them or others. You know, so many times we make that list and there's people on that list, and that's why it's so, so important to do this with a recovered sponsor. You make a list of people, and some of them you really have no business contacting and some of them, you really have no business telling them what you did. You know, you're going to make an amends, but I'm not going to go out and tell. In my, in my situation, I was divorced for many years when I did this step. I wasn't going to go out and call my ex-husband and say, you know what I did, by the way, I just want to say I'm sorry, you know, for things that he should never have to feel and know. Why would I hurt another human being to free my soul why would I do that? But people do it. People do it all the time. I see it and I hear it all the time. And, you know, like, like Holland said, and it's repeated over and over, the willingness. We have to be willing to make amends, but we have to be also willing to see what amends we should make and not at the, not at the risk of hurting other people. There's a lot of times I made amends to people that said to me, Really? You are a real... Mm. And you know what? I'm sorry. I don't accept your apology. I had to suck it up. I had had to do... Thank you, God, that I did all those other steps first. Because if I just went out on day three and started making these amends, it would have been an all-out brawl. You know, so there's a reason why it's in order. There's a reason why, by the time I get to step nine, I've pretty much gone through a lot with my sponsor. And I know... That I'm doing this for a purpose, and that purpose is to be free of compulsive overeating, regardless of what the other person thinks of me. There's been people that I've made amends to, that I've gone to, and I've said, you know, there was one person, I I said to her, my sister-in-law, she didn't talk to me for 10 years, and I called her, and I said, you know, I need to apologize, and I... And I didn't know why. She had her own reasons. Nobody really knew why. she was a bit crazy, but that's okay. And I said to her, I need to know, you know, is there something I did that caused you? And she said, oh, it's just water under the bridge. And I said, okay, well, then I I want to apologize. Now, I could have ran with that. I could have ran with that. And there could have been a whole other dialogue and a whole other outcome. Well, why? And, you know, but I didn't. And I didn't say, well, do you know what you did to me? And I had to sit there and truly take a deep breath and just say, whatever it was that hurt you must have been pretty bad because you didn't talk to me for 10 years and I am so sorry that I hurt you. And it was done. And I had to walk away from that. These are amends that were not easy. You know, my, my instinct, my human instinct, the girl I was, wanted to say, well, really? Let me tell you what you did first. And then I'll apologize for my side, but you apologize for yours. You know, that's who I was. This program is teaching me it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about being free from my resentments. What people do with my apology is entirely up to them. I'm not responsible for that. Keep my side of the street clean. I am sorry I hurt you. My ex-husband, I am sorry I was not the best wife in the world. There were many things I did that I could have done better. My children, I am sorry I was not the best mother. I'm sorry there were things that I neglected to hear, to listen, to do. I'm sorry that I was, you know, in a disease, and I was able to tell them that, that kept my myself, that kept me away from you. But you know what? I had to sit back and listen to them say, well, really, Mom, let me tell you what you did. And I had to be willing to listen to that. That was part of my program my recovery was to listen to understand what i've done to other people and to say i'm sorry and truly mean it and not go home and think well you know i should have said this and that to them i should have really told them which was what i i would have done in the past but you know today i know my my direct amends is not to tell people what i did that's going to hurt them it's not to tell it's just to clear my path so that again I could start a new, recovered life on a different, a whole different playing ground. With God by my side, with my 12 steps, I can do this. I don't ever have to compulsively eat again to hide those feelings. I can look people in the eye. I can say I'm sorry and mean it. I don't have to hurt people anymore, including myself. And with that, we go to my favorite <laughs> step,
2: Harlan. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks, Louisa. Step 10. Uh, Step 10 is also a very underutilized, misconstrued step, and some of the mistakes that we make as compulsive overeaters or as human beings is we want to harbor anger. We want to harbor fear. We're very used to that, and when, when we do, what we do is we light up the mental twist and we find ourselves eating again. If we go to page 84 of the big book, the instructions for step 10 could not be simpler, but for reasons which I have no explanation for, we don't see them in a lot of cases. Here is what it says. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. So very simply, when, we were, when I was talking about step four, we were talking about the rest of the steps. There are going to be things that are going to get past us and here is the mechanism with which God gives us to deal with those things. It says here, we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past Mistake number one, people don't start doing 10-step calls until they're done with step nine. Absolutely a mistake. I start doing this the minute I have the conclusion of the mind of one, two, and three. I start to do four. I'm dealing with resentments. I'm dealing with fear, sexual harm's done on others things come up. So I'm going to take these instructions and start doing it. Let's see what what we have here. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. If you went to the gymnasium today and it was your first visit there, they would probably not say to you that in two hours you'll be in the kind of physical condition you want to be. It takes a long time, so I have to start working at it. It should continue for our lifetime. Now, here's a phone call I probably get 150 to 200 times a year. Somebody will call me from God knows where and tell me that they're eating. And when I say to them, you're not working the steps, you're dieting with group support. Dieting with group support means I'm, I'm not eating, but I'm, I'm Start raving after that's not abstinence, that's dieting that's swinging from the chandelier. They'll say, Oh no, I worked the steps. And when was the last time you cleaned up? When was the last time you did four, five, six? Oh, I just did those a few years ago. Well, that's not the that's not recovery. That's dieting with group support. How much more clear should it be? It should continue for our lifetime. Page eighty four. Now here's the basic instruction. I almost wish it was more complicated then we might be able to follow it. It says here, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step would we use to deal with selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear? Step four, it says when these things crop up, not if, when. What does God know? That no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, when I go out into the world, there are going to be people that are going to make me upset. There are going to be people that are not going to follow my script. There are going to be people that are not going to give me what I want, and I have to turn to this step immediately. It says here, we ask God at once to remove them. So if I've already done a mini four-step here, and I'm going to ask God to remove my defects, What two steps did we use to do that? And we just talked about them, six and seven. So right here I've done four, six, and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately, not in a day, not in an hour. We don't wait till after dinner. We discuss it with someone immediately. What step did we use to discuss things with people immediately? Step five. So, so far I've done four, five, six seven, and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone, eight and nine. Then we resolutely, resolutely meet with purpose, turn our thoughts to someone we can help. What step are we going to use? Twelve, love and tolerance of others is our code. So right here in this little half paragraph, we're going to do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve. I dare you, I throw the gauntlet down, dare you, double dog dare you to do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve every day, several times a day, as many times a day as things come up and still eat Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I dare you, you simply cannot do it. You can't do it. This is a very simple thing. goes on to say, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. When I feel that uneasy feeling, I don't want to see Mike, I'm scared. I owe him money. I don't want to see Larry. Uh, I kissed his wife. I don't want to see Cinderella. I cut her off and tra- whatever it is. I'm angry at Snow White. I'm angry at Stillskin. I have these feelings and I have to get them out. If I don't have the type of sponsor that is going to encourage me to do that, I need to make a change. This is not something that you do in the morning and it's not something you do at night. That's step 11. That's why the nighttime part of step 11 is first. It's because it's assumed you've been doing 10 steps all day. I have to get with people that know the program. I have numbers in my, it's easier to recover than it's ever been. I have numbers in my phone. I don't even have to remember your freaking phone number. I can push your name and I can say, I'm scared. I'm angry. I've lied. I feel these things. It's very, very simple. It takes just a few minutes to clear it up and then I resolutely, I make another call to somebody I don't have to worry about the tools. I don't have to sit and think about the tools. If I'm using the steps, I'm going to be driven to the calling. I'm going to be driven to the literature. I'm going to be driven to all these things. And they have cathedrals in every office building. Don't tell me, if you're my sponsee, that you can't recover because you're busy. I don't care if you juggle chainsaws while you operate on somebody's brain. There's a cathedral in every office building, and there are many of them. Half of them are labeled men and half are labeled women. I can go in there and make a phone call, and I can do this in lickety-split time. Now, then I can also make an outreach call, too, where I don't discuss my problems with someone else. I just make an outreach call to see how they're doing, and that's how I resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And this is something that I do many times throughout the day. I don't just do it in the morning, and I don't just do it at night. Louisa and I, a while back, did one on a vision for you where we discussed the 10-step, and we did a lot of examples of 10-step angers and fears and things like that. You may want to access that in the, in the um, archives if you're confused about it, because we did it, and, and, and a lot of people seem to think it worked very well. But anyway, what I also have is I have prayer in step 10. And the prayer that I'm going to utilize in step 10 is going to be quite important for me, and that is, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. And that's on page 85. And these thoughts go with me constantly constantly. I am no longer serving me. Louisa talked about it in step three, page 53, the top of 63 of the third step promises. I'm going to reiterate those that theme here. You know, when the Big Book wants to tell us something, it doesn't just tell it to us once. It tells it to us many, many, many times. Let's just finish the paragraph, then I'll turn it over to Louisa for step uh, 11. These are thoughts on page 85. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. It says here that we can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. It is the proper use of the will. Okay, we're going to now hear about step 11.
1: Okay. Okay. So step 11 sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. This this step for me and for a lot of people is one is an important step it's something I do constantly. It gives me emotional balance. You know, I've been told that prayer is when I pray, when I speak to my God, when I Give away everything that's in my heart. Meditation is when I listen, when I listen. And you know what? Listening for me was really a learned behavior. I didn't know how to listen when I came in to this program. I was always doing all the talking, and you don't learn when you're talking. You learn when you listen. And so meditation was something I really had to to practice, and I was taught to practice it and to just sit quiet and just let the thoughts pass through my mind, say a prayer, ask God, speak to God, and then just sit quietly. And that quiet time could be five minutes, it could be an hour. A lot of people make it a practice that they do. for me, sometimes it's sitting in my car. You know, prayer and meditation for me happens anytime time I can do it and I need to do it. I just feel like Step 11 is where I get my balance. Step 11 is where now I've, I've already cleared the path to God. I've cleared, you know, through step, by step 10s. I mean, you can't do a step 11. You can't meditate with a step 11 unless you're going through your step 10s as you go through your day. Because how can you even meditate when you've got all this monkey chatter in your head? You can't. So there's so many steps that come before it. And in step 11, I'm taught I'm going to pray. I'm going to meditate. God is now my partner. I take my higher power with me everywhere I go. I hear people say, well, my sponsor's not available. Well, I can't make a phone call. What? No, but you can stop and pray. You can stop and listen. You can stop and meditate. And there's a, a prayer in Step 11 in the 12 and 12. I personally love it. And it's it's a prayer that tells me how I could live my life within. They say it's not it's not just a theory. This is how... I choose to live my life. This is my goal, and it's a prayer by St. Francis. St. Francis. It's, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. And it is by dying to one that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. And that's my goal. And that's what I get through prayer and meditation. Let me be a channel of your peace. Let me go out into the world, and Holland's going to explain this in the next step. Now that I've done all this work, let me take my mind off, Louisa, and go out into the world with so many hurting people and so much work to do out there. And let me bring everything that I've got and shine through me, shine your light through me. And the only way I can do that is by making that conscious contact with God and allowing him to work through me, clearing the path, getting rid of all the junk, putting down the food, putting down addictions, and going out there into the world and being of service. Get out of myself, as Holland says, get out of poor Louisa. And now he's going to tell us exactly what to do to keep our recovery for the rest of our lives, hopefully. Take it away, Holland.
2: Thanks, Louisa. Step 12 is a definite three-part step. And where you find strong OA, you find strong sponsorship. And where you find weak OA, you find very weak sponsorship. And unfortunately for OA, there is a lot of weak sponsorship running around. And I've seen a lot of weak sponsorship, and many of you have too. There are also a lot of people in OA today that are non-compulsive readers. Lisa talked about that at the very beginning. And if I had a sponsor that said to me, go to three meetings a week, make three outreach calls, weigh and measure your food, call in your food, and that that's recovery, I would have been dead a long time ago. There's nothing wrong with all those things I just talked about, but that's not sponsorship. That's not Sponsorship. If I had a sponsor that said to me, do a step a month, do a step a year, I'd have been dead a long time ago. That's not sponsorship. That's not following the big book. And you've got a lot of blind leading the blind in OA today, and that's unfortunate. But where there is strong big book sponsorship, where there is strong sponsorship, you will find strong recovery, strong OA. Now, let's look at the 12th step because we're kind of pressed for time here. I don't exactly know when you're done here, but let's look at the 12th step, page 60. I'm looking at the actual step. I can't, we don't have the time to go through chapter 7. Maybe one day we'll, or I think we have one at the beginning of the meeting. It says you have somebody doing that, and that's, that, I'm sure that's going to be wonderful, and I'm not going to miss that one. Okay, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That means that I must have had a spiritual awakening myself as the result of working the steps. Not that I've had a successful diet, but that I have had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps and that the working of the steps is a continuing process throughout my day and my life. It says we try to carry this message to alcoholics. What is the message that we're carrying, the message of the big book? I am not a financial guru. I am not a marriage counselor. I'm not a pet counselor. I'm not a vocational consultant. I'm none of those things. I am a person who has recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and that we are all people who are carrying a message, whether we want to carry one or not. And when I was, I told you at the beginning, I have 15 years now of continuous abstinence. But when my daughter was not quite two years old, and she'll be 20 in December, and I'll have 16 years hopefully in December. But when she was not quite two years old and I was in the food relapsing, it was a Sunday morning just like this. We were living in Eugene, Oregon at that time. It was a 90-degree summer Sunday, and my former wife and my daughter were back-to-back, my daughter facing the refrigerator and my ex-wife facing a counter putting away groceries. My little angel of a daughter reached up her hand and opened up the refrigerator door about an inch and a half, and she turned her little head to my ex-wife and said, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. Now, if looks could kill, I would have been vaporized. Where did she learn that? She learned it from watching me. She learned it because that was the message I was sending to that little girl at that time in our lives together. Fast forward, we're now living in Scottsdale, Arizona. She's about 10 or 11, and I'm watching a situation comedy on ABC Network about a man and his brother who went around with a list of people that the man had hurt and they're going to make right the wrongs and apologize. Premier episode. She comes into the family room. I'm in in good recovery at this time. Looks, come into the family room, looks at the television, looks at me, looks at the television, looks at me and says, that guy's just doing his eighth and ninth step, right, Dad? That's how far she had come because of the messages that I was sending her without ever intending to send her any message at all whatsoever. We tried to carry this message, the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the only message we have and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. That is very important as I go out into the world. But doubling back to carrying this message to alcoholics, there is one thing I want to say, and I forgot to say it. There are people who are coming into the rooms of alcoholics, of overeaters anonymous, sorry, and they have been hurt. Statistically speaking, many of them have been raped, molested. There are men in the rooms whose wives have left them because of their overweight condition. There are women in the rooms whose mates have abandoned them or do not interact with them because of their overweight condition. On more than one occasion, I have attended meetings with women who have been physically beat up because they gained weight. On more than one occasion, I have heard people crying because their children have ignored them, their, their relatives have ignored them, everybody they knew has turned their back on them because of their obese condition, and they don't know what to do, and they've been to the psychiatrists, and they've been to the bariatric centers, and they've been to the weight loss, the pay and weight places, and they put themselves together, and they come to a meeting as a last resort And we are, as Overeaters Anonymous members, we are the last house on the block. And they come into that room and they are hurting and they are teetering on suicide and they are coming in there as a last resort and maybe, just maybe, you can stick your hand out and give them something that they've never been given before. You can give them hope that maybe because of your story and you're in recovery, that maybe they can recover too. You can light them up. You can light them up. You can give them something they've never had, and that's hope that maybe they can follow your path in the steps and they can recover too. Don't miss that. But if you're eating or you're just dieting with group support, You have nothing to give them. I have nothing to give them. If I'm dieting with group support or if I'm actively eating, the only thing I can do is just grunt. That's all I can do. I can't really do anything. And we have to keep in mind as we go into the world what Dr. Bob, AA's co-founder, bequeathed us. He said to us before he died, shortly before he died, In 1950, at the Cleveland Convention, he said to us, let's not louse this thing up with complexities that are only of importance to the psychiatrist and the psychologist. Let's keep it simple. And let's be on guard for that erring member among us, the tongue. Let's use it judiciously. And let's remember that in the final analysis, that what this will boil down to is love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. There's not a person listening to this phone call right now that doesn't know what love is and doesn't know what service is. You're not in good recovery right now. You can stick your hand out and say, hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Linda. Hi, I'm Mary. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Welcome to our meeting. You can do that. You can do that. And to practice these principles in all of our affairs. To take this way of life into every crevice of my life. If I'm ever in another relationship, or maybe one day I'll get married again, or maybe, I don't know, I hope, I don't know. I don't know what God has in store for me. I hope it's God's will, not my will. But wherever it is I go in business, wherever it is I go in the world, to take these steps with me, the principles are the steps. He just, Bill didn't want to just keep using the same words again and again. You know, you know, you know, you know. He didn't want to keep doing that. I mean, he used the word principles, but the principles are the steps. And lastly, remember that there is an unbroken chain between an event in 1934, in November of 34, when Eddie Thatcher brought the solution to Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson was then armed with both the problem that he got from Silkworth and the solution that he got from the Oxford groupers through Evie And in May of 35, he brought it to Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio. And on June the 10th, 1935, Dr. Bob got his first day of sobriety. And a, and a flame was struck in Akron, Ohio, and little by little by little it inched its way to Los Angeles, California. And there was a man in Los Angeles, California named Jim W. who founded a group where gamblers could come and identify that were not alcoholics to the steps and help them with their gambling problem. And one day Jim W. looked around and there was a woman and her husband and a friend of her husband sitting in the back of the room in 1959, and that woman's name was Roseanne X. And the more she heard about the gamblers, the more she listened to the gamblers, she identified right down the line with her overeating and her lying and her selfishness and fear and anger, and she went up to Jim and said, do you think a program like yours would help someone like me with their eating? And he turned and said to her, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. And independently of that, in Luling, Texas, there was a man named A.G. Ainsworth. And he was on an AA retreat, and he was 300 pounds, and he was coming home from the AA retreat, And he had a friend named Robert who was driving the car, and he was in a lot of pain from his eating, and he said to his friend Robert, Robert, do you think a program like AA would help someone like me with their food? But he asked it in such a way so that he could make it sound like he was just kidding because he was afraid of Robert's reaction. But Robert heard the pain in A.G.'s voice and said to him, you know, A.G., I don't see why not. And A.G. went to another lady named Norma B. in Luling, Texas. And they started five groups of of an organization called Gluttons Anonymous. While in in Los Angeles, there were 16 groups of overeaters anonymous. And one day, A.G. were contacted, the main office of A.A., to find out if anybody else was doing these steps for an eating thing and they put him in touch with Roseanne S., and Roseanne and AG hooked up, and it was like Stanley finding Livingston. And little by little, it got to you. You owe. This isn't free. You owe that debt of service because somebody took the time to bring the message to you. On page 100 of the 12-step promises, if you are following in the big book and you want to go there, I'll end with this before we close. Page 100, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. Those are the promises that I take with me every single day. Um, Would I be out of bounds, Leah and Louisa, if I close with page 164, or you don't want me to?
0: We're going to open it up for some... Hi, Harlan. Thank you. We're going to open it up for some question and answer period and then close with 164. All right,
5: okay. I would love
0: for you to read it at that point if you would. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to open the floor. Thank you so much, Harlan and Louisa, for your charisma, your down-to-earth humor, and your friendly simplicity (sighs) as you carried the message of the program of recovery this morning. We will offer Harlan and Louisa's contact information at the conclusion of this recording, so hold on for that. Now we're going to open the lines for a few minutes for some Q&A, question and answer period. If you have a question you'd like to uh, direct to Harlan or Louisa, star one to unmute at this time. Hello? Yes, Hello. please identify yourself.
5: Yes. Your name, please.
0: Anyone have a question this morning for Harlan or Louisa?
4: I, I have a question, Alea. This is Lois in Massachusetts. Good morning, Lois. Go ahead. Hi, please. Good morning. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, Harlan. Thank you so much for your uh, for your generous um, share this morning. Uh, it was very, very helpful to me today. And, and you mentioned that you you, you mentioned a um, another tenth step um, recording we did on an archive. Do you have the date for that?
0: Uh, I do, Lois. Thank you. Oh, very you much. have it. Yes. Thanks for reminding me of that. For those that are interested in uh, listening to that recording that Harlan and Louisa did regarding the tenth step you can find that on a Vision for You website. Again, that's a vision4u.info. The 4 is a number 4. You'll find that listed on October 27, 2013. That's October 27, 2013 for a recording related to the tenth step Thank you, Lois. Who's next with a question, please? This Hi, is, Sarah. is Sarah. Sarah, I heard you, and there was someone else. Donita. Donita. Okay, Sarah, go first, and then we'll go to Donita. Uh,
3: this is Sarah, recovered, Rachel Recovered, Compulsive Reader. Harlan and Louisa, thank you so much. Um, very enlightening. I wanted to go back to eight and nine for a second. Um, I do sponsor i believe in it strongly. I have been sponsoring for many years um if you have a a sponsee, a protege whatever you want to call it, a friend that has had some somebody that they put on their list that was abusive uh you know uh an interaction that they had and that you know that this person is not a safe person for, for your protege to make the amend to, are there some constructive ways to allow them to have that freedom from that resentment without them putting themselves in harm's way? Um, you know, I under, I really liked what you brought about, um, Harlan about step eight because I think it really is so true the willingness to make the amend is the whole idea Um, but if you want to have a fullness of the of the um, of the experience I I know there are ways that we can go about doing I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts on that and with that I'll pass thank you
2: who did you address it to?
3: Either
0: Harlan or Louisa. Oh, okay.
2: Harlan, you can take that. Okay. Um, if a person is uh, truly abusive, and the person is 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 a person who is unsafe, you can do it over the phone. You can do it in a public place. You can meet at a coffee shop in a public place. There are ways to do it. Uh-huh. But if you if you've harmed that person, you want to get rid of that resentment, you want to get excuse me, you want to make amends to that person because this is your freedom. This is your freedom. Public place telephone. Direct amends. Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you Sarah for the question. Now let's go to Donisa, please.
3: Yes, hi. This is for either one. Um, every day, I'm new to this, so please excuse me. Every day and every night, I say to myself that I'm not going to pick up, and every day and every night I do. But the problem that I'm having right now is that um, the God concept—that I'm very angry at God, that He allows—that I feel that He allows us to go on with me. So I have a hard time with the came to believe. And made a decision, and I think that I'm stuck there because I don't have the faith. I have a hard time praying. If I make myself get on my knees, I don't know what to say because I don't trust them, and I believe that this is keeping me stuck in the food. What do you suggest?
2: I would fire that God immediately, Denifah. I would fire that God, and I would create a new God. And I hear you laughing, but that's exactly what I would tell you to do if I was your sponsor. I do not need a God in my head that is my adversary. And I have a life and death situation here where I have got to have a God in my life that is not going to hurt me, that is not my adversary. And I can either eat myself to death or I can be willing to believe in in, in a power greater than myself. Those are my choices. There is no third choice. Tanifa, there is no third choice.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tanifa, for the question. Anyone else with a question this morning? This Good morning, is
6: Teresa. Oh, sorry.
0: I heard Teresa and was that Susan? Yes, thanks. Okay, great. Let's go Teresa first, please.
5: Good morning. Thank you uh, uh, very much. My question is about uh, steps 6 and 7 um, independently, and then step 6 or 7 as part of a step 10, since step 10 is uh, us doing 4 through 9. And because there's such a small paragraph in the big book about those two steps, I have a lot of questions. And um, some people say that when it comes to asking God to relieve us of our character defects, they fall into four categories: selfishness, um, dishonesty self seeking and fear, and then there are others who have listed a, a longer list of self defects of, uh, of defects that affect them a little bit more specific than that. I find that in kind of the daily step ten that when i'm keeping it to four i'm just kind of glossing over it so um, Louisa and Harlan i'm curious about when you' when you're doing step six and seven, are you keeping it just to kind of the four overarching Um, defects or do you get very specific and ask God, please relieve me of this specific thing, please relieve me of that specific thing?
3: Go ahead, Harlan. Me? Okay. Uh, I just use
2: the defects that are in the book. Every other behavior, every other abhorrent behavior comes from the defects of anger, fear, selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, did I miss any? Anger, fear, selfish, self-seeking, dishonest. Being late all the time is not a defect. It's a behavior coming from anger and fear. Yelling at the dog, whatever, I don't know what you're specifically referring to. Those are behaviors that come from these defects. And I'm just, I don't want to jump on you, but it's not a daily 10th step. It's a 10th step that I do many times a day. But I'm going to go back to six and seven because that was the question. When I consider six and seven, I consider the defects in the big book and the behaviors that I don't like that are hurting me will clear up when I start with those defects. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you, Teresa, for the question. Susan, your turn. Yes, good morning.
6: Thank you all so much. That was absolutely wonderful. So, you know, you, you referenced Harlan um, in the second step, so I'm addressing it to you, Harlan, um, about, you know, and then you referenced it again a couple of questions ago about firing your god, you know, who parted the Red Sea and then creating a new one. Um, and I think that what is a bit confusing for me is that, My mental twist is that even though I consistently turn to this God that I've ascribed um, qualities to, it sometimes feels like I'm acting as if that this God is an imaginary friend, despite the fact, the reason it's a mental twist is no matter how many times I turn to God, I, I find that life is so much better, and, and, and it's, it's an amazing experience, and yet I still have these doubts. And you, you've said how you know critical it is to, to have that willingness, but I find that I go in and out of, of the, um, the trust in that because I've ascribed uh, qualities. I just wondered what that's like for you, Harlan, who has recreated a God from the one you had of childhood. Thanks so much.
2: That's okay. Um, First of all, Susan, it's good to hear your voice. That's the first thing I want to say. And second of all, I have to continually pray to that God, and I have to continually take action to bring myself closer to that God of my understanding, because this is not a program for people who need it, and it's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And I cannot sit here on my duff and say, I believe in you, God, I believe in you, God, I believe in you, God. At some point, I have to take action. And action for me goes to helping other people, doing service, doing retreats, going to conventions, sponsoring a lot of people, giving of myself so that I get that good feeling and I feel God with me in those moments, and then I start to feel him at other moments and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. At the very end of Chapter 4, Reagnostic, it talks about a constant companionship with our Creator, constant companionship. That addresses your imaginary friend issue, Susan. He's not like an imaginary friend like Lassie or Rin Tin Tin or something like that. He is with me all the time. It's very easy for me to believe in God when I see the full moon, I see the stars, I see a waterfall, that's easy. The ocean, that's easy. I've been at both oceans so far this year, easy peasy. When it's hard is when I have to bring him into my consciousness when things are not going well for me, and that takes practice and more practice. And it goes against my will, it goes against my uh, intuition, my intelligence, but I have to keep bringing them in here, and I have to say, how can I best serve these? I will not mind be done about a million times a day. And, and I have to fire gods that do not have characteristics that I care for. And like we were just talking about with uh, Tanitha, she had a god in her head, and hopefully she's fired that god by now. That god kept her in hell, food hell. I have to fire that god. I have to fire that God. And I have a God that is alive and it grows and it adapts. I hope that helps. Good to hear your voice, though, Susan. I haven't heard from you in a long time.
0: Thank you, Susan, for the question. Thanks okay. so much. Anyone else? We have a few more minutes. Yes. Any other questions this morning? Hello. This is Raffae calling uh, Yes. Hi. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Harlan, and Luisa. Was very, very good to hear you all. I I wanted to ask for for Donita um, if she's on the line. Uh, for I would like to speak with her. If maybe at the end you can give me her number, maybe I yes, can help a little. Yes, numbers will be given. Yes, after the recording. Thank you, Rachel. Donita, not uh, the person who asked about God okay yeah hello, okay thank you me. okay yes after the recording thank you any other questions for harlan
4: this is Jean.
0: yes go uh-huh. ahead harlan or louisa go ahead please. i'm
4: sorry thank you very much i i um i i was the first call in and then my my battery died but um i've been in program i want to talk to Harlan for just a moment please hello
5: hello i'm here
4: Yes, I'm Jean. Um, I live in Massachusetts. You're at the other end of the universe, and I don't know whether to adopt you or marry you. I'm 79. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it's like I've been in this program for a long time. I've been abstinent for a long time.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And my weight has been on, and I work this program. I live this program. The God of my understanding lives inside me. I breathe mm-hmm. them in, I breathe them out. I don't. I tell my kids I don't believe in God. I know God, cause He's in me. Mm-hmm. But I have a hard time. It crops up from time to time. I'm the mother of a lot of children. Self forgiveness. I have a hard time forgiving myself. Mm-hmm. That comes. That comes up uh, for me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Action, action, action. I have to help others. I have to get out of myself. There's a lot of times when that phone is ringing and I'm tired and I don't want to answer it. And I pick it up because it's somebody that's in program that needs to talk. I start sponsoring often at 3 o'clock in the morning my time. I start sponsoring at a quarter to 6 in the morning my time. I do the best I can to be of service to other people. I get out of myself, and that helps me forgive me. And the God of my understanding, one of the characteristics that I assign to that God is he understands my fatal human condition and that I've made a lot of mistakes, and he understands, and when I walk to him, he runs to me. Many of you have had children, and Jane, you have children, from what you said. And by the way, I was just in Massachusetts. I was just in Wareham, Massachusetts. I did a big book study out there, and it was lovely. But um, when I walk to God, it's like a toddler, and they take those first couple of steps, and you hold out your hands, and you say, walk to me, walk to me, and they, they walk to you, and you pick them up, and you hug them, and you hold them, and you kiss them. And you you just, you can't get enough of them. And they're laughing and it's love. It's love personified. When I walk to God, he runs to me. I'm just as human as anyone. I have months left at the end of my money. I used to live in a great big house. Now I live in an apartment. I used to have a lot more money than I have today. I was making five times what I make now in my business. It all happens. It's human stuff but God keeps supporting me all the way through it. He keeps bringing me to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And when I go through there and I do this work, I not only get closer with him, but I get closer with me. And remember, in closing, there are three things that are going to happen as a result of the steps. Number one, I'm going to get closer with God. Number two, I'm going to get right with God. Excuse me. I'm going to get right with myself and right with my fellow human beings. So if you're still having trouble forgiving yourself, then Jane, I would really look at what you're doing relative to service, relative to getting out of yourself, to create that feeling that says, yes, I've screwed up, but I'm doing the right thing now. I'm not continuing to make those same a mistakes that's enough out of me on that one. I don't know what else to say.
0: Thank you, Jane. And we'll take one more question, please. Hi, it's Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Hi.
1: Thank you, Harlan. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you very, very much. Harlan, I had a question for you about a previous question. The person who had addressed, if the person that they want to make amends to is not a safe person it says you know that we should make amends except if it would injure them you know themselves or others mm-hmm. um, injure you know somebody or or other people, so what happens if if you if the person's not safe for you and you you don't you shouldn't be in contact with them because they could cause harm to you, isn't that a situation where you should just like? Just not necessarily contact them?
2: I There are ways to contact them to make a direct amends. One of them, obviously, is the telephone. If this is a person that is a felon, if, and I think that that's where you're going with this, if this is a person who is physically dangerous to you, there's nothing in the big book that says we have to put ourselves in harm's way. There's nothing in the big book that says I go up to the Boston Strangler, and say, gosh, I'm really sorry that I, uh, I stood on your sidewalk or something. N- nobody is saying that. But there is a way to do it, and I don't know the severity of the situation, but there are public places, or you, in that case, you can use the phone. I don't want to use the phone to make an amends. I want to do it face-to-face. What is the purpose here? I want to see the person. Some people don't accept my amends. Some people didn't like me before, and now they don't like me either now. And that's okay. That's that's up to God. It's not up to me. But when it says whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, it doesn't say about me injuring me, and it doesn't say I should put myself in harm's way. So you have to have some common sense. Am I avoiding this amends because I don't want to make it? Am I avoiding this amends because I feel this person has done me more harm than I did them? That's not okay to avoid. Or am I doing this because it's a felon and the person might take up a hatchet and kill me or something? There's a a lot of what I don't, you know, I, I don't know the specific situation. If the person is a felon, I can do what I'm, you know, consider that. But if the person is just weird or the person is just uncomfortable for me, you better damn well know that I better lean on step two and go make those amends. Because as I said at the beginning with step two, that that means we're not going to do four, we're not going to do nine. So that person really doesn't have a step nine issue, they have a step two issue. If I trust God and I say to this person, meet me at so-and-so's coffee shop, meet me at the corner of uh, Fifth and, and, and Frankel, okay? meet me there at the coffee shop and we'll sit down. I want to talk to you. That's okay. It's a public place. You'll be okay. It's a public place. So I hope that answers it.
0: Thank you, Lisa, for that question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Louisa and Harlan, for your time this morning as you carried the message of recovery to all of us here on A Vision for You. And, Harlan, would you please do us
2: This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. That's one, two, and three. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. That you've, done, you've done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Hear freely of what you find and join us, 10, 11, and 12. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.